everywhere I looked, it was trucking. I even got on an airplane and somebody had left a a copy of a publication called Transportation Topics, which I still am a subscriber to. And it was open to a truck safety article in the seat back pocket in front of me. And I'm like, really? I mean, somebody's trying to tell me something here. That's Joe Freed, one of the nation's preeminent truck accident attorneys. It's been an amazing thing, and it really feels like I'm doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. To me now, when I go into a case, there's a huge expectation that some magic's going to happen. Man, it's a scary place to live, man. I mean, what if the magic doesn't happen? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Joe Freed is known as one of the most skilled and hardworking trial attorneys in the nation. He's not only dominated his niche, he's rewritten the entire playbook. So what drove Joe's transformational growth? I mean, the truth is that, you know, I'm somebody who grew up really hating bullies and my whole life. I mean, I didn't know that that's what I was doing, but uh, sometimes at very young ages, but I was always somebody who gravitated toward being the guy who would stand up for the little guy and try to stop whatever was going to happen bad to the little guy and to try to fix what did happen bad to the little guy. And, um, you know, I went to high school here in Atlanta. Um, I actually was born in San Diego. I lived for a little while in Israel uh, through a war there in the early 70s and then moved back to the States. I was a young kid back then. And, you know, when we when we get into the, the law side, I did spend uh, I spent about five years in police work and went to law school during the very tail end of that. And then um, beyond that, did a, a little clerkship and then started directly into the PI world. And so within that world, I mean, I think that that's where, it, you know, it really starts from not liking bullies and the cases even today that I work on. I feel like the ones that I, I really sink my teeth into are ones where I feel like it's a bully story and I can get behind sort of defending the voiceless. I mean, the, the people who don't have the power, if you will, and trying to do something to equalize that power struggle. Joe has always been an ambassador for justice. In fact, prior to becoming an attorney, he was a police officer. I got involved in law enforcement because I lost several friends in very close time period to accidents that involved uh, drugs and alcohol. And as a high school senior, I took myself, I put myself into an internship actually at the Fulton County Police Department. At the time they had, I think, the first DUI task force in the country. And I wanted to know as a young idealist, I wanted to know what the world was doing to try to stop things like this from happening because it seemed like everybody was dying. While I was doing that, I spent some time in courtrooms and sitting in a courtroom to me was like sitting in a hallowed place. It was, 
it was a place that even as I was a police officer starting when I was 19 years old, so I was pretty young. But even even at a very young age, I felt that important things happen here. And I also saw with my own two eyes that justice is not equal at all. Justice is not blind at all. And despite the our you know affirmation that it will be, it's not. And one of the big difference makers is the lawyer. Uh, and so I saw that as the place that, that I should go, uh, the place that I could make a difference. Um, I had a, an older sister who was an, an attorney at the time, and she, um, she helped me make that decision. And I had a judge who pulled me up one day, asked me to come talk to him and, and told me in chambers, kind of like, what are you doing? Do you want to do more? Not that law enforcement isn't a noble thing to do, because it is. But that's the that was the that was the way it all started. And um, so I went to law school. I did well. I'd always been a good student. Came out, did my clerkship. Yeah, that was the that was the real motivation for the transition. Where you've gotten to today, it seems like an overnight success. You know, twenty five years in the making. But I guess if you could speak to what what that evolution was, and, and ultimately how you landed on trucking. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. You know, for, first of all. Um, it's been a long road, but it's been a great ride. And, um, you know, I, when I, throughout my career, I can tell you this, um, that it's always really been a continuation of police work. I mean, from my perspective, I just have better resources. And I've, in each stage that I'm going to tell you about, I feel like I've created better resources for myself to be a better police officer. It's just now my way that I'm acting as a police officer, I'm still going after somebody or some entity that I think did wrong and that needs to be held accountable. And so it's still very heavily, and I'm still very heavily involved in an investigation, the forensics, all those kind of things. That's where I think I make a difference a lot of times. But you ask about the specifics of, you know, the progression. I started out as a med mal lawyer and I handled um, primarily cases that involved birth trauma um, and surgical mishaps, things like that. I spent seven or eight years doing that, and I happened into a case that um, happened into a case that involved a car that got hit from behind and caught fire, almost like the old Pinto case. I won't tell you the whole story, but it was it ended up being a Ford Mustang, got hit from behind, caught fire. I didn't think it should. And that case took me on what ended up being about an eight or nine year uh, focus into post rear impact fire cases. So my first exposure to being a hyper specialist, I mean, I was a specialist when it was MedMal, uh, but when you when you focus down on the MedMal, then there are people, and I have friends and you know them, who specialize even within MedMal into now they just do birth trauma cases or they just do child blindness cases or you know whatever, whatever it is. And so for me, I, I didn't intend to ever be a post rear impact fire lawyer, but I remember going to an AAJ conference and I was on an elevator and somebody said, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a lawyer. And they said, well, of course you're a lawyer. You're here for this. And I said, well, I'm a post rear impact fuel fed fire lawyer. And they said, what the hell is that? And I, I had to explain it, but I spent eight years of my life doing almost nothing but post rear impact fuel fed fires. And what happened was, you would think, how could somebody make a living doing that? And unfortunately, I could. I mean, I say it unfortunately for reasons you understand. People were getting hurt um, and dying because 
what I thought was a pretty ugly defect. As I became more and more obsessed with that very, very narrow area, I not only became a subject matter expert in it, but people started hearing about it, largely because I would go and share what I'd learned with other people in the form of seminars. Um, and you know, you'd spend literally hundreds and hundreds of hours developing something, and you'd go and you'd bring it and you'd share it, which I thought was one of the great things about the plaintiff's bar is that we're willing to do that. And so what happened is my geography grew. As my practice narrowed in its scope, my geography grew and it truly became national. I was handling cases all over the United States and this little punk from Georgia was um, handling major, major fire cases all over the place and working with really great lawyers who frankly probably could have done it themselves, but they didn't want to spend the hundreds and thousands of hours that I had spent becoming a subject matter expert. So fast forward a little bit and uh, I had told Ford that you know, if you fix this problem, I'm going to stop suing you. And they, at first, you know, early on, they were like, you know, I mean, I, you know, I was a flea to them. But later, I was a big flea and a bigger flea, and then kind of a colony of fleas. Or what? What do you call a bunch of fleas? I don't know. Is it a gaggle? Is it a um, whatever it is? I would, I would, I was something that that eventually. I, I don't want to say that I'm responsible for Ford changing the design of the Mustang. But I think I played at least a small role in that. And the result of that was that at least from that point forward, there wouldn't be this problem anymore with people uh, burning alive in Mustangs after relatively rear, uh, minor rear impacts. So I had achieved what I really wanted to achieve at that point. And somebody uh, called me who was a lawyer for Ford who remembered me saying what I said and said, OK, so we're changing the design. The funny thing is I knew that because I had just gotten thrown out of the Detroit Auto Show for climbing under the new Mustang and trying to take pictures of it. But, you know, they came down, Ford came down and settled my cases. So I woke up one morning and I literally had no cases. Um, and um, I had done okay on the money side of things. That's also about the time um, that I ended up leaving the firm that I was with. And I was stumbling around looking for what I was going to do next. And uh, I knew for me, for Joe Freed, I'm not saying this is necessarily the case for everybody, but for me, hyper specialization was going to happen. I think I could psychoanalyze myself and tell you that one of the reasons I do that is because I don't know that I could be a subject matter expert in lots of things at the same time. So um, I choose one. And it took me about a year to focus in on trucking itself. I'm happy to tell you that story too. But um, once I decided to focus in on it, I, ha I have made it my life. I mean, it's, um, it's not a marketing ploy uh, to say that. I mean, I spend every day working on trucking. Uh, not only are all my cases trucking cases just about, but I'm involved in the safety world in trucking. I communicate every day with different safety directors from companies that I've sued trying to build coalitions, trying to make changes in the safety culture and uh, trying to understand where we can change some motivations in the industry. So it's way beyond cases at this point. It's really trying to leave a mark on an industry that's a positive mark. You know, it sounds like you could have hyper-specialized in a number of different areas. You could have done a lot of good in a number of different places. I am curious as to what, what led you down trucking in particular. 
Well, I, first of all, I had not, I did not have a lot of trucking experience at that time. And I really was, I was floating around trying to decide what to do. I, I even, I took some business cases. I took a Fair Labor Standards Act case. I took a case against a broker in a real estate deal. I mean, I, at the time there was also a lot of tort reform talk. I didn't know what was going to happen in the industry. And then for a couple of weeks leading up to a particular night, everything that it's felt like everywhere I turned, it was trucking. I, I even got, you know, I'd turn on the TV and there was, you know, a truck wreck. I would look in the paper and there's a truck wreck. And, you know, everywhere I looked, it was trucking. I even got on an airplane and somebody had left a a copy of a of a publication called Transportation Topics, which I still am a subscriber to uh, now. And it was open to a truck safety article, you know, in the seat back pocket in front of me. And I'm like, really? I mean, uh, somebody's trying to tell me something here. And so uh, within a few nights of that, that airplane uh, ride, I was tossing and turning in bed and it was well after midnight. And the internal dialogue for me was, um, it's time to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up. And, you know, it's got to be specialized, but what's it supposed to be? Well, I think something's saying, saying to me, I'm supposed to do this trucking thing. I don't know. You know, trucking is different than auto products and, and MedMal because people are happy to send you the product case. They're happy to send you the MedMal case because of the cost and the risk of those cases. But people look at truck cases as kind of a gem case and they're not going to need to refer the case but they're not really specialists in it. Neither am I. I mean, I wonder if there is enough to dig into to really make this a specialty onto itself. And long and short of it is I, about three o'clock in the morning, I decided that I was going to be, I was going to be a truck accident lawyer. And at the time, you know, I know now lawyers look around and they see ads everywhere. Everybody's a truck lawyer. At the time, people laughed at me. I mean, the next day I went in early in the morning Literally, I was the first time I was energized in a long time. I went in. I was waiting for my at that time staff of one person to come to come in who left with me for my old firm, so I could tell her what my you know midlife crisis moment was or what I was thinking. And I was taking myself off of all these boards that I was had been put on. I, I was sending messages to people who were on these product boards that I was on for the fuel fed firework that I had been doing. And I had gotten some notoriety and gotten put on uh, some national boards. And I was writing to them. I went to sleep last night, an auto products lawyer. I woke up this morning. I'm a truck accident lawyer. And the people who were up that early were responding to me saying, what did you drink last night, man? I mean, first of all, you've got this incredible practice where, you know, you're making a lot of money and you're just going to stop doing that. You're going to stop just like on a dime. And I, my response was, yeah, I'm already stopped. It's done. That's in the past. And so... About 8.15 that morning, uh, the phone rings. And um, you, know, you got to understand this. I had no trucking cases when this decision was made. I pick up the phone. I'm in my new little office, which is little. I'm, I'm renting space from a good friend of mine, all on my own at the time. And this lady with a kind of a far off voice starts to talk to me. And she said, is, is this Joe Freed? I said, yes, ma'am. How can I help you? And she said, um, at three o'clock this morning, my husband was killed. And I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. What, what happened? And she said, I, I don't know, but I, I don't know what happened, but I know that he got hit by a truck. 
And I thought, really? I mean, this is some, some weird stuff, man. And this is almost like, like, did I cause this? No, I hope I didn't cause it. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, but that's kind of the thought I had. I said, well, how did you know to call me? And she said, I, I don't really know how, how I have your name. And she called, she called me. I mean, I don't know if somebody in law enforcement gave, gave her my name. I don't know if, I mean, at the time I, I probably had a website, but I certainly wasn't a trucking website. And of course I said, well, don't talk to anybody else. I'm on my way to come see you. And right about that time, my one staff person came in and I said, we're now a trucking firm. That's what all we're doing. And I'm on my way to sign up our first client. But from the moment I made the call to do this, I blew up the other bridges. I, you can imagine I continued to get phone calls for product cases that would have been million, multi-million dollar product cases. I turned them down uh, instead, and I didn't have many cases. Instead, what I did is I, I took a lot of steps to become a real expert, subject matter expert in trucking, studying the regulations, studying the training, studying what does it mean to be a CDL driver, all the things that I now go around the country and try to teach other lawyers about and started to develop. It was the early stages of developing what I now believe to be best practices and that I teach about all over the country. It's been an amazing thing, and it really feels like I'm doing the work that I, I'm supposed to be doing. So that's absolutely incredible to me in, in, in the sense that there's really a few things at play here. One, you just decided to become the trucking lawyer, and then the following day you were. And it seems like many attorneys struggle in the sense of they say, well, I don't know if I could be the trucking lawyer yet or the med mal lawyer or what have you. But you burnt you know, essentially burnt the ships and uh, and made that commitment. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is you mentioned that when you started, you didn't have any trucking cases. So I imagine that probably took a, a great degree of commitment and, and maybe even confidence in knowing that you would be okay. But I guess what was going through your head at that time when essentially you're turning everything else away and you don't have any trucking cases, but you know that that's the path you want to go down? I, I'll be honest with you. I was scared to death. I mean, that's, that's the, um, the truth is I was, you know, the more we spend time getting to know each other, the more you'll see that fear has driven so many things in my life uh, and directionally what I've done. Um, but I was scared. That's about the time I looked to to um, become a partner with Michael Goldberg and, and at the time Buck Rogers. And they had trucking experience. Uh, they had worked together on trucking defense at, at Dennis Quarry in Atlanta at the time. In fact, that's how they met. And I came to them and we, we, we had decided we were going to sort of team up as a firm. And I went to them and I said, I think we should market ourselves as the truck lawyers. And their response, which was the world's response at the time, is we won't get enough business. It's too narrow. People will stop thinking about us for other things and we'll end up shriveling up into a nothingness. And, and I said, OK, well, you know, I mean, I'll do it myself then if you don't want to do it. I'll market just me in that direction. But ultimately they they trusted in the vision and they they delved into it. And you know, they already had a lot more expertise than I did. And we started from the beginning to at the time more than brand ourselves, we had to first teach the world that this was a subspecialty, if you will, that this is not just a marketing ploy to get trucking cases that there is enough substance, enough difference between handling trucking cases and handling auto cases that the world needed people who were specialists in this area. And while we were doing that, 
we were branding ourselves into the leadership of that sort of new space, if you will. And I think that that timing is important because I think that as we were doing this, there was a lot of there, there was at least some other hyper-specialization starting where you would see people, you know, there were already people doing just MedMal. Uh, there became more people, for instance, starting to focus on nursing home cases and becoming really true specialists in nursing home. And you know, there were a few things like that. The idea of hyper-specialization was um, in, in its infancy. I think it still is in its infancy because if you compare us lawyers the legal field to, for instance, the medical field, where you see what specialization is there, and you ask yourself, are we really doing anybody any favors pretending to be generalists? You know where my leaning is. Yeah, yeah, and well, and I would tend to agree with you. Even you know when when I wrote the book, one of the areas that you know I suggest in terms of just because of the challenge of commoditization, particularly in the legal space, with so many options for consumers, that a way to differentiate is to truly pick a niche focus. But not only is it just from a differentiation and perhaps you know case acquisition sense, but when you specialize and especially hyper specialize, you can become the best at it. And there's always room for for the best. But you know I want to ask you in the sense that. I'm sure that given the value of trucking cases, who would not want to be the trucking lawyer? But I would imagine that not everyone could be as successful. And in, in, in a sense, to hyper-specialize, you also have to have a degree of passion towards the area that you're hyper-specializing in. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that if all you're doing is trying to figure out a way to make a buck, I feel for you because that must not, that, that's got to be a tough place to be. I, I think, and what the message I try to tell my kids is I, don't, I really, truly don't care what you decide to do. My prayer for you is, and it's truly my prayer uh, for them, is that whatever they decide to do, they do it from a place of passion. And then, you know, it's a lot easier to put those 15 hour days in that it sometimes takes to, to be successful at it. It's less less of a job and more of a calling or a ministry, if you will. But, but I think, you know, when I, I, and I mentor people all the time and I help them whether they tell me they want to be a truck lawyer and be my competitor, or they tell me they're just looking for a way to do this. And what I do is, is sounds like a lot of what you were saying in your book. And that's, I, I help them look for their passion. I, I mentored a lawyer not long ago who he was telling me about, he wanted, he was recently on his own and he, and he wanted to, you know, figure out directionally where to go. And he's talking about how, you know, he wants to, he was so focused on just areas of law. And he was saying, well, this one basically makes more money than this one. Well, we took a break from our discussion about um, law. And I was saying, well, tell me more about you. I mean, what, what, and a lot of people, because I, um, I speak very openly about it, know that I have a son in recovery and um, he's doing great, thank God now, but it was quite a roller coaster for my family. And I know a lot of people have, have been there. Um, and are there. And in some of those cases, people aren't doing well. So prayers for all of you out there who are dealing with that. But he was telling me about how his interaction with that world and mental health, the mental health component of, of that world and how it's interrelated to some degree and in some ways. And man, you could see this guy's face light up when he's talking about these people and their struggle. And yet, here's what you and I both know, Michael, 
there's still a stigma, right? And you, you work with lawyers all over the place. They wouldn't tell you, I want as many cases where I represent drug abusing, alcohol abusing people who are addicts. And that's who I want to be representing. But I made the suggestion to the guy. I said, you know, you're because he, he want, he's in the PI space. How do you distinguish yourself? I said, look, nobody wants those cases. But dude, if I'm sitting on a jury and I just heard you talk the way you talk about this, I'd give you millions of dollars. And I'd start to understand the true plight of these people who are on this, this journey that touches just about every family in America. And man, wouldn't that be something? So he just recently contacted me. He said, dude, I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to start marketing myself as the guy who, who works on these kinds of cases. And whatever they are in PI, I want to be the guy who helps tell the damages story. And to me, that guy's a hero, man. And I think he's going to be really successful because he's found something that it's a story that needs to be told. I mean, and I'm excited to see what he's going to do. I'm going to do everything I can to help him. And Joe, I would say that your the results that you've experienced have certainly been, I mean, should we say uncommon? When you look at it, you know, I think I saw on the website that there's been over 107 figure verdicts in the last 10 years, handled cases in over 30 states. You know, the results have been over a billion dollars. And and look, money is not everything, but oftentimes those verdicts are proof that what you're doing is successful. And I'm just curious as to what it is that you believe you are doing differently, because I know you've mentioned, you know, that perhaps fear is driving you, but I also sense a degree of obsession behind what it is that you do. Well, some of those results are partners and things like that. Those aren't all mine. I just want to be very, very clear about that. We have had a lot of success and I'm, I'm proud of that. And so, I mean, really I'm taking your question as what do you think is happening differently? And part of it is a passion. Part of it is a, a refusal to buy in to, I think the limiter for most plaintiff's lawyers, when you look at the value of a case is the plaintiff's lawyer themselves. If God forbid you ever need a plaintiff's lawyer, the interviewing question that you should ask them is tell me what you think about my damages, not what you think a jury might do. Tell me what you think, because I'll tell you what, folks, when your lawyer says, I think what a jury will do is X, what they're really telling you is what they think. That's that's the truth. It's one step removed, but it's easier to say, well, a jury's not going to like you. A jury's not going to like the fact that you were a drug addict. A jury's not going to like, I think a jury would return a verdict of X. That's really a, a, a foil for what the lawyer thinks. And I challenge that every single day. And I ask the lawyers I work with to challenge it every single day. You talk about a, a case where somebody's in pain. And I don't care if it's a discectomy. I don't care if it's a whatever, whatever the defense wants to say it is. I don't care about all the issues, all those kind of things. If somebody really was not living in pain before and now really for the rest of their lives, they're going to experience pain and it was not their damn fault. Or maybe it was a little bit their fault, but someone else helped an awful lot. I mean, why is that not a huge damn case if it's real? So what we do is we look for the real. We look for how do you get behind, beneath, beside the story that most lawyers tell, which is the red light, green light, the number of times you went to the orthopedist, the, these pain meds you took, the whatever. And we look to get to the human compelling story 
the why, the what's really going on. And when you hit on it, there's a level of credibility that comes with that. That's just hard to argue against. You know, I see in, in these cases, the defense in these cases, they pick all these things that I think are silly to focus on, things like gaps in treatment, things like pre-existing conditions, things like that. But we as the plaintiff's lawyers accept those as problems. Why? Why are we accepting them as problems? They need to be explained. They need to be discussed. But just because someone has a gap in treatment doesn't mean they're not living in pain. I mean, I, I know people and you know people. You may be a person who lives in pain almost every day and doesn't go to the doctor about it because you've been told there's nothing they can damn do for you. And you sit around and wait, wait around in a doctor's office you know, all day. So I guess the point that the, what we are doing is challenging and trying to not buy into what I think is a defense mentality in cases, especially on valuation. And we also look for uh, the cases that we have most outperformed in are cases that have, quote, big problems, end quote. And when you learn how to look at that, quote, problem and incorporate it and, and find a way that it really fits into the case, it not only stops being a problem for the case, but now there's a new narrative for the case. The case is now about how dare the defense try to play that card to try to avoid the responsibility level that they have in the case. I mean, look at the trick. Look at this. Because at the end of the day, that's what I think juries respond to. So I talk a lot about how can the other side be 100% right and we still win. And I talk a lot about why every juror should care about this case and award a big verdict. And until you answer all of those three questions, you're not really ready to present the case for damages, whether it's to a, in a mediation or in a demand or, or to a jury, in my view. Now, there's a saying of, of how you do anything is how you do everything. And I, and I would imagine that over the years that the, the way that you've worked up these cases, the way that you've maximized case values has helped to build up a reputation and perhaps momentum so that when something like this does happen, judges, jurors, other lawyers, they know how the firm will, will approach things like this. And it seems like the, the firms that cut corners or settle for perhaps uh, lower amounts and so on are doing themselves a disservice down the line. Uh, there's no question about it. Look, look, I've now lived, I can't believe I'm an old lawyer. I, I want to be a young lawyer. When uh, I first started, I, I, I ran the new lawyers division for the Georgia Trial Lawyers Association, and we created it. Myself and another lawyer named Mark Tate created that. And we wrote into the bylaws that he and I would forever be called young lawyers. Someone took that that out. Can you believe that? And, uh, and, and, and we're not young lawyers anymore. But I, I have lived now long enough to know that people do keep score. And the way you live every day matters. And and you're writing the story of your life every single day and with every interaction that you have. And so if you want to get just get all the fluff out of the way of what I'm saying, insurance companies keep tracks on what you do. And they know if you're somebody who is willing to take the case to trial or not. They know if you're will if you're the guy who folds at the end or not. They know those things. They also know, and I've been told, I've never been a defense lawyer, but I'm told by lots of defense lawyers that the first thing that they do when they get a complaint is turn to the last page and see who signed it. And so from the very, very beginning, I think it matters. And I'll tell you another thing though, it's, not, it's how hard you work the case matters. 
I mean, if you if you give attention constantly to the case, the case is important not because you say it's important, but because you act like it's important, and that drives value. Every every, every lawyer who has any level of experience who lis- listens to this podcast knows that the cases that are important to them get their attention. The other ones tend to lag behind. You kind of push them forward. Hopefully you got a good case management program that's pushing you forward, but that's not where your energy goes. So act like the case is important and the case is important. Yeah. And, and, and Joe, just just over the years, it seems like there's many times where you could have just ridden off into the sunset. So it's clear that's not money that's driving you, but I know you mentioned that fear is. And in many of the most successful people that I've spoken to and even interviewed on this podcast, you know, the prevailing theme has been that only the paranoid survive. But I'm curious as to why why you believe that fear has driven you. Well, I, what I can tell you is I've always had a, um, I've always, I think that, that fear makes us do, go down different paths. And for some people, fear drives them to drugs and alcohol and reclusiveness and, and failure and others, it drives them to be a different kind of addict, one that goes to work every day and on weekends and spends 15 hours a day. And, and if you look at those things, it's an addiction also. But I think, that, I think that mankind's constant struggle is, is a struggle to keep fear and self-doubt and sort of worthiness at bay. And those are all versions of, the, of what I'm talking about. So, I mean, to me now, when I go, when I go into a case, there's a huge expectation that some magic's going to happen. Man, it's a scary place to live, man. I mean, what if the magic doesn't happen? And what will I be then if it doesn't happen? Because people are fickle and uh, there's people who would love to pop anybody else's balloon if, if you've had any measure of success. So fear continues. I mean, I'm not saying I'm walking around cowering in corners uh, because I think courage is not uh, the absence of fear. It's action in the face of fear, right? We call we call the other thing probably something else. But but at the at the end of the day, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I think that that for now, I also have this sort of more global fear. It's a different kind of fear, and that's for the world we live in. You know, I, I mean, I have kids and I look at my kids and other kids, and I see the innocence. I see a society that in some ways has devalued life a lot and devalued pain a lot. And I refuse to accept that. So in what I do is that that's that's a fear sort of of what we become as a as a world and as a society. And I'm trying to do my small piece on a case by case basis to remind folks one by one, case by case, that every human being is valuable. Every human being's experience is valuable. I'm not better than anyone else. I think that there's a there's a macro and a micro level. And now that I've had some success, I have more resources to be able to play in that other sandbox. I mean, the reason I can spend so much time now working on safety policy and trucking and going to Washington, D.C. and starting the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys and doing all those kinds of things and being able to have time away from specific cases is because of some of the successes we've had. Otherwise, I couldn't do those things. So I get to play in a, in a sandbox that, ha- that hopefully can make some positive change. Over the years, Joe's doubled down on his commitment to education. In fact, 
He believes so strongly in ensuring that victims of truck crashes receive fair compensation, as well as the importance of improving highway safety, that he literally gives away his secrets for free. I do my best to train my competitors. And every now and then I catch myself by the throat and say, what the hell are you doing? And then I turn right around and say, I'm training my competitors because what's more important is um, that we leave this place better than we found it. And, you know, I think what happens on the defense side is they come up with some new thing or some new idea or whatever, and they hoard it and they won't share it. And they think that as soon as they share it, their, their value goes down. That's just not the mentality I have. And I mean, occasionally it is, it pops into my head, but I let it go. And like I said before, I mean, I'm actively mentoring several people around the country who are trying to develop national trucking practices. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is this, there's enough trucking cases. I'm handling fewer and fewer at a time now. I mean, my firm has grown. We have nine lawyers now and almost everybody does just about all trucking. So uh, we do we do handle some occasionally some other significant uh, injury cases that come in and and that catch our eye, uh, but from my perspective, I view it as training soldiers to go out there in the world and do good, and all that I can all that I can do is hope that it's the right global thing to do, whether it's the perfect thing for my existence or not. You know, I'm fine. My measure of success for me now is helping other people become successful. People that work with me and my firm, my younger partners and associates, my paraprofessionals who have been awesome and now are able to live a better socioeconomic existence because they've been with us for a long time and they've helped us succeed and we've helped them succeed. But then even beyond and way outside of our firm. I mean, everybody I think who has success owes a debt of gratitude to somebody And the way you pay that debt of gratitude is to pass on what you've learned and build the next generation. I just think maybe that's my internal sense of duty, but it's one that I think is is righteous and correct. So you clearly have a mindset of abundance. And it's interesting in the sense that as you are sharing everything that you've learned and and educating, you know, other trial lawyers and trucking lawyers, as you've been sharing that type of information over the years, what type of impact has that had on your firm and, and even your life? That's the crazy thing is people think that it's going to somehow hurt you and actually helps you. I mean, in fact, you you sometimes I catch myself and say, am I really being altruistic or am I really being a marketing person? You know, I mean, I think that, I, you know, I want to say that I'm truly being altruistic. And when I do, when I go and speak at seminars and teach courses, I don't hold anything back. I mean, anything I've got, I give it away. And, um, you know, you can go to our portal on our website now and you can get examples of just about anything somebody might need for a trucking case. But the reality is, is I wouldn't have the stature that I have in the legal community if I wasn't a teacher. Somebody asked me how many presentations I've done that are trucking related presentations just in the last decade. And we've been doing this longer than a decade. And so, you know, I keep them all because I've got a file folder with them all. I mean, uh, online folder and I stopped counting at 500. Um, so that means in 10 years, 500 presentations, you can stop right there and do the math. There've been 520 weeks in 10 years. I've done 500 presentations in 10 years. That means just about every week of my life, I've been teaching somewhere, somehow for the last decade. 
it's a lot of talks. It's a lot of airplane rides. You know, I see you and your people out at conferences supporting what trial lawyers are doing all over the place. And I appreciate you you making that kind of commitment. I still want to win a Tesla or a Ferrari or something, but you get the point. I mean, it's, it's a, it, the short answer to your question that I've just made very long is the more I've given, the more I've gotten. And it's been true. It's true. Every time I teach, I learn. It's, a, it's this weird dichotomy in the world. The more you give, the more you get. The less you need, the more you get. The more you give it away, the more it comes back to you in spades. And the and that's true on the financial side, but it's it's also very true on almost the spiritual side, the parts that feed your soul. Because I have, and I keep some of them, but but I don't keep lots of them. I have emails and and handwritten cards from lawyers around the country, and even from some judges around the country that are just they're very moving. And those are the things that really, I mean, where you feel like you've made a difference. Money is just a metric of success. But knowing that you made a difference in someone else's life for real, that's some cool stuff, man. And and going back to what I started with, which I don't like bullies, when you can do that, and at the same time you've taken down the bully, that's even better. So, so Joe, with, with, with your schedule and even over the years, I know you've talked about over 500 presentations. I know there's been a rigorous travel schedule um, with all the commitments you've undertaken. What are some of the things that you do to, to basically continue to operate in your peak state, whether it's certain daily practices or certain habits? You know, I've seen you on the Peloton, so I know that that perhaps is at least one of them. But I'm just curious, what, what are the things that you have to maintain to, to be consistent? You must have a rear view mirror because I think you're looking over your shoulder to see me on the Peloton. Um, I'm behind you somewhere. But I did. This year This year is my year to recapture health. So um, I made a commitment. And, you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm really good at keeping commitments to others, but not nearly as good at keeping a commitment to myself. But I committed in December, I committed that I would ride the Peloton every single day in the year 2020. And so far it's now it's now the eighth day of May, and I've not missed a day uh, on the Peloton. It's not always pretty. In fact, it's rarely pretty, but it's making a difference. You know, uh, for me, the things that keep me, uh, try to keep me centered is um, that I feel like I'm on a on an important spiritual journey, and that uh, it's part of that is religion, but but really it's something a little different than that. It touches on that, obviously, but it, it goes goes, and I don't want to say beyond that, but it's it's a spiritual journey that involves just trying to be the best human being I can be. And so, there's plenty of things for me to work on on myself. Um, you know, starting, you know, with um, some things that happened to me 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I had some really truth spoken into my life, and and um, and I do a lot of work on uh, those areas of my life that I feel are ugly, you know, just trying to live an honest existence. And, um, you know, I told it to you at the beginning of the show before we started that a big part of my life is trying to recognize where I'm being honest and not being honest and fix the parts where I'm not being honest. And I'm trying to take care of myself health wise, but that has not been, that's a very recent thing. Um, I have worn myself out, done terrible things to my, my body and my, and all that kind of stuff in, in terms of just the schedule that I've kept. But now I'm trying to eat right. I'm trying to work out. I'm blessed with a great wife. I'm blessed with four awesome kids. I try to be 
a good husband. I try to be a good father and I try to keep my mind sharp. One of the things that you know, I've always found interesting and I'd love to get your thoughts on just based on your experience, you've obviously had a very successful career over these years. Do you believe that it is possible to achieve the level of success that you've had in the time frame that you've had without the trade-offs and the choices that you've had to make during that time? I'm working with a life coach right now. It, it's working on that exact thing because you can't, this isn't a switch that you can flip on and off. You know, here's the truth. The truth is, you know, I don't have a whole hell of a lot of hobbies except practicing law. I don't spend time with a bunch of friends unless it's related to the practice of law. I've had these successes, but you could redefine success and I would be a failure. You know, because my success is, you know, if, if there's eight places to look at where you might be successful and, uh, you know, I've got one or two of those, I'd be, I'd be, you know, a rock star in the other six, I'd suck. I think for me, it goes back to that thing of fear and, and that sense of, are you worthy and all those kind of things and how you deal with that. Some people turn to drugs and alcohol and some become addicts for work. I believe that. I think that, that there are people who, who hit it lucky. There are people who go and their first trial out, they get, you know, $500 million. And, but, you know, for most people that do what we do, um, they go get a big verdict and the next day they get up and go to work. It's not, you didn't win the lottery. And it's partly because of what you're talking about, whatever that is innate inside of us that feels that our purpose is and our value derives from, you know, these successes. So I don't know is the answer. I think that it's, I, I personally think it's hard. I, I think about it a lot and I might get in trouble for saying this, but I think about it a lot when I think about women who are trial lawyers because it's so much harder for them. I mean, they're better than we are in, in, in naturally in a lot of things, uh, more empathetic and things along, along those lines as a general rule. And I know that's already stereotyping for which I'm guilty. But the reality is, I mean, it is hard to be, to make those decisions between, you know, motherhood and, and work and all those types of things. It's much harder, I think, for, for a woman than it is for a man. And I, I mean, maybe I'm being sexist saying that, but I, I think about it a lot when I see these awesome trial lawyers who have been people who I've been teaching and I see them go into the struggle mode and there's almost a, um, you can sense the internal struggle that they that they have between having to make some of the choices that they've got to make. It's hard. And I guess it's hard for everybody, but for some reason, that's been something that's been a focus of mine over the last uh, five or six years as I've seen, as I've allowed myself to feel my way into that. One of the things you mentioned earlier, the, you mentioned the, the trial lawyer who gets lucky and their first verdict is, is $500 million. I'm, I'm would be potentially challenge that and say maybe they got very unlucky with gaining that success very early on without learning the lessons and building the humility because it, it, you know, the, as the expression goes that you know that life happens for us and not to us and you know the way in which you get there I find uh, the, the way in which you make your money really does seem to matter so to close this out you know this being the game changing attorney podcast what does being a game changer mean to you? Well, it's a great question. I mean, to me, I, I think I would go back and say to being, being a game changer means that that in each stage, in each place that you have in your life, that, that you have the ability to be a game changer, that you are a servant leader. It means that you are you are bringing up the next generation. It means that you're living a life, I think, at the end, 
we're here to live our lives in service of other people. And I think that I find that the happiest people in the world are not the richest people. They're not the ones that the world might call successful from a socioeconomic perspective. They're the ones who, who most live that way in service of other folks. And so as you get more resources, it's easier to do that, but you don't really need resources in order to do it. Uh, that's what I'm learning a little too late in life. Well, and, and, and Joe, thank you very much. I mean, I appreciate your your openness and your vulnerability. I think that the message that you've shared here is going to be very helpful to uh, a lot of trialers, no matter where they're at in their career. And and it's interesting because of how they may see things on the outside. So for that reason, it's uh, I think it's going to be very valuable for them to hear this message. Well, my, my promise to all of your people is um, if they reach out to me, they will hear back from me. Um, it might take me a little time, so give me Give me, but they will they will hear back from me. And if I can help them in some way or they think I can, they will get time with me if they want it. And that's a commitment that I'll make to you. And in case you can't tell by now, when Joe Freed makes a commitment, he always follows through. So I want to give a huge thank you to Joe for taking the time to speak with me today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was the fact that when Joe goes into the courtroom, and there's the expectation from others for magic to happen, the amount of pressure that he puts upon himself that breeds that level of excellence and the amount of pressure that he must now live under to continue to be the icon that he is. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. And join us next time when we'll be talking to the creator of EOS, that's Entrepreneurial Operating System, and the best-selling author of Traction and Entrepreneurial Leap, Gino Wickman. We'll be speaking about the six traits of all successful leaders and what they must have to thrive as entrepreneurs. Clarify your vision. Decide if you are a partner person. Know that the bigger the problem you solve in the world, the more successful you will be get feedback from customers and clients early and often know that your first plan will not be your final plan work hard really hard take criticism and doubt from others with a grain of salt and see it every night for more information on our interview with joe freed see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com mm-hmm.